Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, January twenty seventh episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on SoundCloud and Instagram at Poets and Muses. And now you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the link on the upper right hand side of our SoundCloud Poets and Muses page. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter at Imogen Arate. That's I M O G E N A R A T E. This week, our guest poet is Blues Black. Before I turn to blues, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry-related events taking place during the week of January 28th. On Monday, January 28th, from 6 to 9 p.m., Cafe Tuba African Coffee Shop will be hosting its Speakeasy Cafe Tuba Open Mic at Elzer Hour Restaurant, which is at 7812 North 27th Avenue in Phoenix. From 7 to 10 p.m., Truth Be Told will be hosting his one mic stand open mic at Valley Bar, which is at 130 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Sign up to be on the mic is at 6:30 p.m. On Tuesday, January 29th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 6:30 to 9:30, Nocturnal, the poet, and the Poor People's Campaign will be hosting its monthly The Art of Justice Open Mic and Art Show at First Church, which is at 1407 North Second Street in Phoenix. The entrance is at the parking lot. Signing up for the mic will start at 6 p.m. From 7 to 11 p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting Aaron Johnson and Adrian Novi at the Rhythm Room, which is at 1019 East Indian School Road in Phoenix. If Aaron Johnson's name sounds familiar, that's because he's the MC of the Phoenix Poetry Slam. And as I've witnessed firsthand, he is an amazing poet. You can purchase tickets for this event at rhythmroom.com. From 8 to 11 on the same night. Ken Kong is hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which again is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to be on the mic starts at 7:30 on Wednesday, January 30th, from 4 to 6:30 p.m. Lauren Drexler of Gen Society will be leading the Mesa Prototyping Project Neighborhood Walk and Poetry Workshop. The meeting point for this walk is at the Mesa Art Space Lofts, which is at 155 South Hipper in Mesa. From 8 to 11 p.m., Poetic Soul Phoenix will be hosting its weekly open mic at Club Downtown, which is at 702 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. You should get there by 7 if you want to sign up for the mic. On Friday, February 1st, from 7:30 to 10 p.m., New Carpa Collective, which includes our last week's guest poet Anna Flores, will be putting on their play "A Year of Imprisonment" at the Arizona Latino Arts and Cultural Center at 147 East Adams Street in Phoenix. You can find out more information about the play at New Carpa Collective on Facebook. Carpa is C-A-R-P-A. 
On Saturday, February 2nd, from 5 to 8 p.m., the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at ASU will be hosting its Sparky Slam Poetry Competition at the Herberger Young Scholars Academy at their ASU West Campus, which is at 4825 West University Way North in Glendale. The Slam is open to students from 5th to the 12th grade. You can get more information about the event and register at cisa.asu.edu slash sparky-slam. That's S-P-A-R-K-Y dash S-L-A-M. On the same night, the Clute and the Maricopa Arts Council will be hosting their 2019 All Arizona Poetry Slam from 5.45 p.m. at the Maricopa City Hall, which is at 39700 West Civic Center Plaza in Maricopa. And now let's turn to our guest of the week, Blues Black. Hi, Blues. Thanks Hi. for coming on the show. No problem. You brought us the promised land to lead. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before you read that? Uh, no, I'm a 60-something, born and raised on the East Coast, both in the South and the North, uh, both in segregated communities and integrated communities. Mm-hmm. After you know, uh, finishing the high school in New Jersey, mm-hmm. I decided to uh, go away to school. I had worked on high school and accumulated uh, some funds because my parents, I saw that they weren't going to be able to uh, pay the cost of college and I had an ambition to, to go to college. So I worked to senior, junior and senior year of my high school okay. uh, years to uh, accumulate enough capital to, uh, to go to college. And I went away to the state of Maine for a year, to the state of Wisconsin for, I can't recall either two or at least two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I returned to New Jersey and I finished school at uh, Rutgers University, okay. New Brunswick in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Professionally, I've done a lot of things, mainly in the social service and teaching fields. I did that for uh, till my mid-30s, and then I started doing industrial work. Mm-hmm. I did industrial work for the next 25 years. Wow. Sometimes I switch back and forth to uh, teaching uh, high school and doing industrial work. But in the main for last, from my mid-30s until now, mm-hmm. I've been doing that industrial work. So I've been writing poetry for a long time and reading poetry for, for, for a long time. And what um, brought you to poetry? I think a teacher in the fourth grade gave me some poems to read. Then in high school, I read quite a bit more. I always thought poetry was a, no, all literature, not all art, basically. Is a uh, very appropriate, a very powerful mechanism for talking about the experience of life in the human condition. Yes. Okay. So that's basically what brought me to, to poetry. Especially poetry. I like the form of poetry because I've often said this to people. One can write a novel in a one-page poem. Mm, yeah. That's why I, I like I like the medium. Uh, I also like novels too, but. I think you can you can say a whole lot and very you know, briefly. And I think that's powerful these days because I know my attention span <laughs> isn't that great. <laughs> and from based on experience, I know other people's attention span <laughs> isn't, isn't that great either. So yeah. if you can do something that they can read within you know, 10 to 15 minutes, that works. Mm. Or perhaps even shorter than that. So. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, and it stays with you. Right. All right. Okay, great.
Great. So would you like to read the promised land to us now? Yes, I'll read the promised land. Grandfather paced about the 300-year-old house, looking, behaving like a junkyard dog with rabies, while mother and granny simply sat, weeping as if they were deeply wounded lovers. When daddy unlocked his and only his chest hauled out his guns. We children knew it would be an unlaughing day. That day will always remain crystal clear, even in my rapidly declining mind. The Apollo of American nonviolence was gone. American truth, American justice, the American way. Simply America, as always, merely being itself. What's going to happen to us, Mommy? You ain't going outside today. After he was gone, after he could no longer hurt the American way of life, America embraced him, disfigured him, distorted him, made him a damn American hero only after he was gone. I took to the no-one road of distrusting everything mommy and daddy in America embrace. MX became my guy. And who in America really knows studies MX? Who in America celebrates MX? I may not get there with you, but... We, 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 we will get to the promised land. He had told all who would listen. Is this the promised land? He had carried a slew of I have a dream dreams as he stoned about this severely low learning land. Then we took that long, teary walk behind him somehow holding on to centuries of unrealized and seemingly unrealistic dreams. Fifty years done come and gone. My runaway slave youth, my freedom-seeking, trouble-making, street-fighting prime, and now these always and forever on-the-run gray years. Are we there yet? Is this the promised land? Thank you for reading that. Not a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about the poem, such as your inspiration for it? I think I told you this. I was going through some boxes for some reason. I can't remember why I was going through some boxes that no, I have in the house. I came across a number of boxes with old poems in it. Mm-hmm. And this particular poem was in it, and it was written probably 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. I say all that to say the, to say that I don't know what inspired it, what <laughs> 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 motivated it, but obviously it has something to do with where we are as a society and as a country. No right now, and it hasn't changed much in 15 or 20 years either. The inspiration for it is the time period from that period of the 60s when King was active and then assassinated. And then 
more recent times, has there been fundamental change, true progress? I think that's the questions that, that have been being asked because you know, King had this vision of the promised land where, you know, a person wasn't going to be, be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. <laughs> there was a lot of hope in the 1960s that American society would transform itself from what it was into something entirely different. You know, a lot of people had a lot of dreams and hopes. And now, as we, or I in particular, look back and examine things, mm-hmm. now that question begs, one, what has changed? How it has changed? And has this dream been realized? Has this dream been achieved? If so, why? If not, why? Mm-hmm. A lot of my poems raise questions mm-hmm. that I want others to consider. Mm-hmm. Whether they consider them or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. they do, sometimes. I know some of them do because they tell me about it. Right. But in terms of the wider audience, I'm not entirely sure because I, I and I say, say that because one, although I know many people at these poetry readings around the city of Phoenix, where I read at, mm-hmm. very seldom do these people that I know, that I've known for a long time, mm-hmm. express any reaction. <laughs> and this is pretty provocative stuff that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know where, where the heads are. I don't know if I do this anymore, but I had, when I first started reading poetry in the city of Phoenix, mm-hmm. one of my goals was because uh, this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. One of my goals was, in my mind, was to go into the belly of the beast. And by that, I mean predominantly Anglo-American audiences, mm-hmm. okay, and talk about American history, mm-hmm. which includes standard American history, traditional, conventional American history, then the history of others, including you know, African Americans, Native Americans, Latino Americans, Okay, because I concluded from conversations with many people that still that that element that uh, Ralph Ellison talked about, the visible man, mm-hmm. was still present. Meaning that people of color was not visible right. in their lives <laughs> in no shape, way, before. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be not only a segregation, physical segregation, but a mental segregation. It's a psychological segregation. Yeah. Even so now, because as quietly as as it is kept, due to the fact that racial segregation sometimes still exists, is not as intense. As it once was, but what we have more so now is the economic segregation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is also tied to race. Exactly. Exactly. So these most most of these communities, especially the middle, upper middle, and upper class communities, now you don't get a significant just from a numerical standpoint number of people of color. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then those ones that tend to be there, and this is obviously an opinion. Many of them, if not the overwhelming majority, have had an experience where they have been. I want to say this: they had the experience of living predominantly in the white world. Mm-hmm. All of their lives. Mm-hmm. That's not to say all of them have done that. Obviously, all of them, those people haven't. But many of them grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods, went to predominantly white you know, secondary schools, did predominantly white colleges, and mm-hmm. work now they're in predominantly white workplaces. So, in, in a sense, and I found those type of people, they don't want to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. They have something to protect. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, they, I mean, some, obviously, there's exceptions to everything. Mm-hmm. But the, the ones that know, many of the ones that I know, uh, 
and I can speak most authoritatively about African Americans, the ones that, that I know, they just want to fit in. They would not challenge any attitudes, any assumptions, any beliefs of their surroundings. Mm. Okay. And there are probably many reasons for that. Because what you find is many middle African Americans, and they're not, this isn't unique to them within the African American community, but they have adopted mainstream American values. Mm. Okay. And in their experience, like I said, going predominantly white schools and white universities and so forth, they know very little about other than their personal experience, which one cannot discount. And I wouldn't judge their personal experience. I don't, who knows about somebody else's you know, personal experience completely? Nobody does. Mm-hmm. But uh, they accept what the culture and the society feeds them. For example, and I have done this experiment. I have asked people to name five most historically significant African Americans of the 20th century. The first thing people comes up people's mind is Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't even make my top ten. Mm-hmm. First and fundamentally, just based on long, longevity. Mm-hmm. He was on the scene from 55 till he was assassinated in 68. Yeah, these other people who were on the scene, like the boys, since the beginning of the century mm-hmm. <laughs> until the 1960s, and many others. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing is Martin Luther King really didn't originate most of what he was involved with, most of what people... You know, associate him with, like the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm-hmm. He came in later. Mm-hmm. Okay, he was selected later to be their spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Why was he selected? Because he spoke the language white people understood. He was university trained. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he could speak their language. And most people don't even realize the March of Washington wasn't even his idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was A. Philip Randolph's idea. And A. Philip Randolph had been involved on the scene since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But this is what the propaganda that America puts out about Martin Luther King, that he was the beginning and the end of the civil rights movement. <laughs> and believe me, most people still think that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why you know, I'm very passionate about it, because it's just incorrect history. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of simplification. Right, a lot of simplification. It was my quest, not only that, but just the whole range of activities that have gone on in Americans, American uh, history over the centuries. Knowing that most people were unaware of it, and for many people, the source of their information is what I call Hollywood history, <laughs> from movies that are put, put out for Hollywood. These Hollywood movies, they are designed to be history. Right. They're entertainment. Right. Okay, so they may have a base or kernel of truth to whatever the story they're purporting to tell. But they aren't going on, you know, history. Right. Okay, it's a rewriting of history, it's a dramatization of history. And, so, and these people make these movies say that. But people perceive them as the holy word. Right. Well, because there are two hours, as you said, attention span right. has shortened. It's much easier to consume a two-hour movie that, you know, entertains you via, you know, sight and sound and and all that than reading a book, uh, especially history books sometimes uh, that can be dry in in an academic setting. Entertainment industry does cater to our... um, Worst habits. (laughs) Yes. But the other thing is, and I think it's encouraged by the culture, you probably know this, Americans have an international reputation as being a historical (laughs) compared to other places. I perhaps wouldn't go this far, but I've heard from other people. And reactions, assumptions that other people make is that Americans are dumb. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. We just have bad education. Okay. Systems. Yeah, you see, but that the education system is a reflection of the culture. Mm-hmm. So you can't take that in isolation. Mm-hmm. Because there's a reason why the educational system is as it is. Well, part of it is also we have two layers, well, several layers of government. There's always a fighting between the states and the federal government. And there's no one particular education system. Every state sets their standards. And according to each state's history, they tend to look at American history in certain, from different perspectives. Well, I mean, they, they want American history to be, you know, glorious and celebrated and all one big, you know, line of progress. So they don't talk about what I call the underbelly of American history. I have no problem with people being proud of the American War for in, independence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But the whole picture is distorted. Well, it is in keeping with what you said. It's part of the culture. Our movies tend to be, you know, everything would turn out to be all right at the end. No matter what horrible subject, you know, it takes on at the end of the movie, everything's fine. Somebody will come and save the day. And even this persona, MLK persona, is that he is the hero. And and every every superhero movie is one person. This Avengers thing is actually somewhat new, you know, they're teaming mm-hmm. up, but mostly it's about one person. It's very it's very much what's stated on the one dollar bill, you know, you pluribus unum. Right. One person will come and save. Well that fits right in with our whole the, the, our culture's whole stress on individualism. Mm-hmm. Which okay. I personally, I like it. I do think we should strike a balance. The irony is I don't think our culture actually appreciate individualism. No, they don't. It's a very conformist culture. Yes. <laughs> the individualism thing flows down from the elites. Mm. That's their concept of America, that uh, we have freedom. We're not like other societies. And I won't call them communists or socialists because that's an inappropriate term for them because it's not correct. The Soviet Union was not a communist society. China is, is not a communist society. Uh, Cuba is not a communist society. But the other thing about this whole discussion is that all cultures and all nations are based on myths. Mm. So all American history, one, is geared to what some people describe as the dominant culture, and two, it's all a myth. And that dude wrote that book, The Alternate History of America, or The Other History of America, or something of that sort, when he points out that, one, uh, and it begins with Columbus. How can you discover some place where somebody's already there? Right, right. <laughs> and then this whole thing about manifest destiny and, you know, but they don't talk about the brutality that went along with no, the expansion of Europeans from the East Coast to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. The theft of land from Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Okay, the destruction of Native American cultures. Okay, just, 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 I mean, just the sheer, you know, brutality of the whole situation. It's totally erased. Totally erased from the American consciousness. And then you have the slavery thing, stealing it, Africans from Africa, bringing them over here. And then the whole economic argument, you know, involved involved with that and then want to sanitize it that's what they were geared to do that's all they are capable of doing they're inferior we're taking care of them the whole matrix of racism which came out of that labor thing so it was my goal when i first started reading around around phoenix to whack people over the head with this Mm-hmm. That you need to, to hear about this. You shouldn't be going around with these fuzzy, rosy notions in your head. 
mm-hmm. about what a great, great, great country, great society this is. Mm-hmm. Even if you try to whack them over the head, well, and there's some issues with that because nobody wants to be whacked over the head. No. Nah. Okay. Uh, People get defensive. Okay. See, but that's necessary. Why are they getting defensive? It's like a human behavioral thing. Not, <laughs> not, not necessarily because they have any sort of evil intent or anything. It's just that people, behaviorally speaking, psychologically speaking, people will, <coughs> will be more open to your anyone's ideas that are different from theirs if they were asked to thought about. I might disagree with you on, on, on that point, especially here on a deep psychological level. And this probably applies to all cultures and so forth. Oppressors and explorers psychologically don't want to deal with their investment in that oppression and exploiting. I agree with that. At the same time, what I'm saying is... And they have closed minds about it. That's what we all agree with you about. I mean, if you got an open mind, okay, like when women talk to me about misogyny, I don't mean they shut it off become defensive about men. Yeah, but that's you individually. What well, I'm saying is behaviorally speaking, as a species, human beings, period. It's easier to convince somebody of what they don't believe. Okay. You know, that's why in this poem... But as I was saying, people would tend to be more open to your opinion on things, especially if they don't agree with you, if you question them, let them think of the answers. Okay. This is more more from a psychological behavioral uh, okay. point of view. I'm not talking about you see, that, moral that, or ethical. Okay. That bothers me, and I'll tell you why that bothers me. And I'm not saying it's not true. Because okay? it's probably true since day one, right? Since the advent of the human species. Right. Okay, see, and what that's, that bothers me. I'll tell you why. So since the advent of human species, this behavior trait has been present. So, you know, we've been walking around and so forth for how many years? 200,000. 200,000. We haven't learned anything different? Well, you know... You see, that's why this poem... That, I, I uh, actually, I, I would say the same argument for, for misogyny, right? For and it's equal, correct. Gender it's equality. It's perfect. It's perfect. We've been around, you know, it's women... You're you right. You know, them pop into the world. You're right. Certainly. So, and you're right. Right. So what I'm saying, though, is not a defense of how people behave. What I'm saying is a description. It's a reality out there is what you said. <laughs> yeah. I, I, get what, I get what you said, but I'm saying what that tells me, and that's why I put this in, the, in this in this poem this severely slow learning land it's it's true we we are you know and that's a shame you know i'm sorry to hijack this conversation with this but earthlings i call them earthlings and i'm not from earth by the way (laughs) (laughs) no earthlings it's a tragedy that we are such slow learners we are and part of it is due to our culture of celebrating this exceptionality. But we're supposed to be independent thinkers, individuals, right? Yeah, but we haven't, I don't think we've geared our education system to raise independent thinkers, really. We've uh, geared our education system towards... To support the culture values as conformity and as vocation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, certain classes of people do get different kind of education, different inroads into education, and 
This is true. Different I mean, there's ways always exception to it. Yeah, but the tendency right. is to not think for ourselves, but to cram a lot of knowledge in and to think in certain ways, depending on the school that you go to. So that that is a sad reality <coughs> for our culture. And because our culture celebrates this American exceptionalism, it makes it even harder to look within ourselves and so look at all no. the things that we've done that's not that have not been exceptional. Right. You know, don't think about this American conceptualism, okay, that, that, and I know it's just by habit to say our culture. That exceptionalism, no, BS, that's the myth that the elites put out there. That's a, the, the sole concept of exceptionalism, okay, is these, you know, boneheaded, ethnocentric, elite university, you know, so-called thinkers put out there. Trace the root of that concept, where it comes from, mm-hmm. and who put it out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you, does it? Don't believe me. Do the history on American. I, I don't think we're arguing this no, point. Though. I think we're, we're very much in agreement right. that this is this is what's tripping us up in terms of admitting that we have done so much wrong within our own history, and that's why we are in the place that we are. Um, why we're such slow learners, as you mentioned in your poem. Going back to your poem, I wanted to understand some specifics, because you have mentioned for, in the first line, you said, grandfather paced about the 300-year-old house. This is talking about your actual, your grandparents' house. Is this, or is it a metaphorical? That's a metaphorical. Okay. 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 And that represents, you know, the 300 years of oppression, Mm -hmm. of exploitation that we're trying to get out of and reach that promised land. Mm -hmm. We're trapped in this nightmare for 300 years. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, there's an opportunity seen that you can get out of it and get to that promised land. Mm -hmm. I grew up in North Virginia. Okay. The house that I'm speaking of. It was probably about 100 years old. I mean, it didn't have. This was in the 1960s. There was no central heating. We had a mm-hmm. fireplace and wood stove. Right. There was no air conditioning, none of that stuff. There was a whole house. And it's the, the whole first part speaks to how disruptive that event, the King assassination, was for most black people. Yeah, I mean, you expressed that fear, I think, um, you know, when you talked about daddy... Uh, when he took out his gun from the chest and also when uh, the mommy character answered you ain't going outside today you know there's very much that fear and anticipation of what might happen to the rest of the people now that this shining symbol that was accepted by white society have been assassinated Mm -hmm. it's like the floodgates have been breached Right. That idea. Right. So the fear is definitely there in, in your poetry. And also the, the the other side of that is the fear of what we knew was going to happen. Which was? And to put it in street language, because I think this is the most appropriate language to put it in, okay? Niggas was going to tear up shit. Mm. You have no, the brothers on the street, okay, we know y'all are not going to deal with us because we want to fuck up shit anyway because we just mad and we're not going to speak all this rosy language like King does. Mm-hmm. Okay, but King is trying to get along with y'all, trying to work with y'all, let's go, and he's telling us, no, we don't need to be violent and so forth and so on, okay, all right, so we're we going to go with him, we we'll see what he's going to do. And then his assassination comes, and there was just, I don't know if you remember after King's assassination, people rioted for weeks. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. People, people tore up shit <laughs> and burned shit for weeks, oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah, it was a very bad time. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was that type of anger within certain segments of the African American community. Right. So, oh, because there was a 
in in some way there was an unspoken trust that was violated. Yes. Because in having King as a symbol, it's almost as if the African American community had extended an olive branch. This is true. And that olive branch had been taken away and right. burned, basically. Right. This is this so, is true. That period after King's assassination was similar to in the state of Mississippi after Emmett Till, mm-hmm. after the Emmett Till situation. Right. That people didn't let the kids go outside because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Right. So this was similar to that. Even with the stuff now, the Trayvon Martin and some yeah. of the stuff going on, me, that fear that you talk about is there is that you no know, and the Black Lives Matter movie came out of this. We don't know what's gonna happen to our kids when we let them out. Right, right. So we gotta be very 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 protective of them because you know the language has changed since back in the sixties and so forth. I mean you got this implicit bias and intersectionality and all these fancy words these days. <laughs> but uh the human Condition remains the same, so to speak. Right. In that respect, yeah. I mean, you got even like middle class people. I mean, I don't know how this how this got out. This whole talk about the talk. Um, sorry. Let me put it this way: there's some distortion about this whole concept of talk within the wider culture. They talk about it as if it's something widespread within the African community, when in fact, still in my analysis when I did research into it and my experience is a African American middle class thing. But the talk is that that you sit down, you're a young man when they get about 10, 12, 13, and you tell them about the dangers in the wider society. Mm. Okay. And why I say, one, uh, based on my experience and research that's middle class uh, phenomenon, is that when you're growing up in whatever you want to term slums, ghettos, low-income areas, fear of authority, especially the police, is just in the air. One, because you have brothers, uncles, friends, cousins, we have experienced it. So let's talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, then when you reach a certain level, I mean, you kids perceive what's going on around it. Right. Okay, they might see somebody, please beat up somebody. Okay, so they don't need to have a talk. They are inherently aware of the dangers in the wider society. Okay, but people start talking about this phenomenon of talking. They and I've been in sessions with them, and they talk about it, both black and white people, as if it's someone that's new to, and that it's a rise, widespread phenomenon within the African American community. People started talking about it when I think uh, there was some segments on Oprah <laughs> and stuff <laughs> like that right. about. Then Obama said he asked Trayvon Martin, he had to talk with him, so people. Started to, for me, it's just something that's always. Yeah, but it it reflects just the simple lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because this was really grabbed on by by white people, progressive white people. Mm -hmm. The the simple lack of really knowledge about African-American culture. Well, yeah, and there isn't one African-American culture. There's many. Yeah. Just like any other... Any other Any culture. Other culture. There's no monolith. People think, right. you know, people who are insightful. Yeah. Okay, think there's a, you know, there's a monolithic culture of, of whatever. And right. of course and there, there is. isn't. There yeah. is. It cuts, yeah. it cuts across many social oh, groupings, yeah. 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 economic groupings as well. I mean, there are definitely things that middle or higher class uh, African Americans do not have to deal with that lower income African Americans do have to deal with, and and that uh, ironically they have a lot in common with lower low income whites. Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Which is which is probably why Bernie Sanders got so much support from both sides. Of the oh yeah. Because they're both economically disadvantaged communities. I mean, yeah. they, they, so, they, so they, they, they say they, similar they. things in, in that aspect. 
without without considering their skin color. Right, the racial and, element. Yeah, the racial element. And what you said about this not having the talk, but also just the fear of authority had always been there. And the slow learning process is why I chose the poem I did. I'm going to read that okay. and then we can talk about it. Self-destructive. A running roll call ever extending. Massacres stem from fatal encounters. Executions followed by exonerations. The news now comes in steel casings. To disguise an ingrained fear over melanin finely tuned to fit us for our ancestral homes as we spread to explore the world, now used to calibrate every excuse because we've never left the farm. Our memory faulty, we keep amending the meaning of reasonable doubt with a now encyclopedic list for stripping life from our fellow citizens and lash abuse upon the deceased. Bound by death, they can no longer resist. Though we rise up to say their names, seeing clearer with every injustice that what went awry has never been fixed and that pigment continues to be leveraged by those seeking to dominate with minds, dogged by disproven eugenic prophecies, spoon-fed in every bigoted social policy, hacking away at our common link in denial that we've been stealing from our own better future by divesting from our fellow brethren, thinking we're stopping a theft from shared coffers when we're robbing our lives of their brilliance, now buried in lead, insults, anguish, and tears, banished before they can each shine from potential, because <coughs> fear prejudiced our eyes to only see danger and forced into shape one form the countless myriad. It's very powerful, Paul. Yeah. Thank you. Very, very powerful. So could you talk about where this came from for you? Yeah, I've been reading a lot over the years about the various fatal encounters that black men and women have had with the police. And in the recent <coughs> years, they seem to, especially during the Obama years, they seem to happen more and more frequently. I don't know if it's because they were happening more frequently as a backlash to the election or because suddenly there were more coverage about what was happening. But it was just something that we can't seem to get away from, and it continues to this day, of course. I wrote this poem relatively recently, last year. You see, that's another thing about our history. Black Lives Matter and you know, all this activism since Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's when the Black Lives Matter came about and so forth. And so. But what the police behavior is nothing new. Right. When I wrote this poem, I wasn't just thinking back to Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. which was a very publicized mm -hmm. case in recent years. Good. But there's been the Avenger Diallos, the Rodney Kings. It goes back decades that, you it know. It goes back since the beginning of the time. Right. right. You see, I, I raised that point because, unfortunately, I'm glad to hear that you, know, you were aware of this. But a lot of these young people, they think, <laughs> they think in their mind, Okay, these progressive young people, both black and white, mm -hmm. that this stuff just started happening since Trayvon Martin. For me, I feel like maybe that is uh, just an outcropping of each generation's egotism, right? Because each generation 
tend to think that whatever is happening to them is new. Yeah, or not so much new, but that this is the most important. This is the most catalytic generation. You see, for me, that's one part of the slow learning thing, and two, why this country. Culture is definitely a problem. You cannot understand who you are until you understand who you were, mm-hmm. how you got to this point. Right. And um, you don't go into any type of future until you have an understanding of that. Right. Because we don't teach that. I wasn't taught this stuff. Right. Okay. I wasn't, I mean, I was taught some, I was introduced to some of these subjects mm-hmm. and then I took it to where I wanted it to go. Right. I'm the same way. I like to dig into the subject matters. At the same time, a lot of people tend to want to escape all the uh, but the focus, the focus of our culture, one is vocational. And people have written books about this. Entertain them to death. Mm-hmm. Keep them fat and laughing. And everything will be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, and, uh, keep fat. And, and it pertains to, you know, all the various cultures in the United States. Keep them fat, happy, and comfortable. Hey, I'm good. Why should I care about anything? I'm good. Right. But uh, I like this this line of uh, Madeline finally tuned to fit us for our ancestral lands. Mm-hmm. I have a sort of a understanding of it in my how I process it. But how did you come come to this line? Well, as I have mentioned in a previous episode, I like science and I read about science a lot. Mm-hmm. So in my poetry, that comes through either covertly or overtly. This is somewhere in between that I'm talking about why we developed the skin colors we did, okay. why that's important, but that doesn't necessarily inform who we are, the rest of our characteristics. Right. Sort of right. going back to King's speech about the content of people's character right. rather than judging them by their skin color. I didn't understand this line because we never left the farm. That is a reference both to the plantation as well as to animal farm. Okay. In our memory faulty, we keep amending the meaning of reasonable doubt. Yeah, again, uh, the memory faulty is is a reference back to Animal Farm as well, because I forget which animal, which animal. <laughs> would be would be very convenient coincidence, right? I, I feel like it was most of the animals that were having problems remembering the past. And in Orwell's mind, that was how people who cannot remember their history tends to repeat that. Right. And that's the idea that I wanted to invoke, that we seem to forget what the treatment was and what the treatment continues to be because even though legally African Americans are free and there are so many circumstances under which they've been constrained. Mm-hmm. Now I've now looked at these situations, I tell you I've lived in various parts of the country and so forth and so on. And I encounter people and I talk to people. I pretty much be honest with you, know, I'm old now. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. As I say, you know, 50 years done come and gone. You know, my runaway slave youth, meaning that after King died and other stuff, other stuff happened. That's when I really started. And I was only like 10 or 12. And I had inklings of this before, just based on the way we live, because I tell you, it was a segregated community. Mm-hmm. Something is seriously wrong here. <laughs> And like something is very seriously wrong here. Mm-hmm. Okay, and one, I'm gonna explore to see, you know, what I can find out about it. Mm-hmm. Two, I'm not gonna accept it. Right. And three, you know, I'm gonna try to communicate it to to others. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to when I took to, and it's a no-win road. Right. Right. Because you're alienating yourself 
from the larger society. Right. And I don't know if you know if you know this. Other than race, African Americans is very conservative. Mm, well, yeah, I mean, other than, ra- other than racial matters, African Americans are very conservative. And again, depends on the segment of the African American. No, no, no. I would disagree with you. I would argue with you about that. You have this one, this very slim, intellectual slice of the African-American community who claim to, to be, you know, non-conservative. But uh, other than that, I would venture to say, just off the top of my head, I would say that over 90% of the American, African-American community, I would describe them as conventional and conservative other than for racial matters. Okay, based on religion. Mm. Values, patriotism. Somebody once, once said this African Americans are, get it straight because my memory has got to go on <laughs> me, religious, individualistic, materialistic, and patriotic. The, the core values within the African American community are those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even these guys, the purported radicals, I think, and mainly the intellectuals, okay, there's some trade unionists and some workers. Mm-hmm. If you really look at, drill down and look at the values, what are they seeking? And generally speaking, it's not to transform the society. It's to get a seat at the table to get their piece of the pie. As well as what, as what they was what they what they really talking about. It's not that this is all messed up. We need to really look at how this thing is structured and how it's arranged, and we need to change that. No, it's not that we want. You know, that's why people are crazy about Obama. And Obama wasn't talking about transforming anything. No. Okay, it was like, our guy is in there now. That's why I say you have to go along with the program in order to be rewarded by the program. Mm-hmm. This guy, Amiri Baraka, mm-hmm. I knew him. He was one of my teachers, right? Okay. At Rutgers. Okay. This guy, brilliant man, got along well. But he had a problem. All the books he read, all of the awards he won, all the stuff, he could never get tenure at university. Mm. They would never tenure him. Wow. And he couldn't understand why. And I told him this. I said, man, you can't go around running these people down, destroy them intellectually, calling them all types of names, and then you expect them to give you tenure? <laughs> <laughs> Like, what's wrong with you, man? Come on. Now, if you don't know, play the game, give it the program, you ain't getting tenure. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still all human beings driven by ego. And it's very, for somebody who's an intellectual, who think if I would just show my intellectuality, and somebody will respect me for that, rather than mm, his, his be petty this. about his, ego bruises. His argument was this. And this, I think it's somewhat true. We got these white guys who do the same stuff that he was doing. Mm-hmm. That they were getting tenure. Right. I must have do the MIT, whatever, I forget his name. The linguists. By the way, there's a number of them. No, I need yeah. university. But Who as you tra- said, you know, huh? if you can't even get to the table, then all you want is to wedge yourself in rather than cause or dismantle the table at that point. I mean, once you get to the table and actually be comfortable, then you can look at what's wrong with what's on the table, right? So, yes, but in the process, what happens is, once you get to the table, for the most part, for most people, then you're comfortable there. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you don't want to put that at risk. Well, yeah, I mean... Okay, so you're going to go so far right. in your challenge, and when they tell you, back the fuck off or you out of here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, you... And I've seen that happen. Right. I've seen that a million times. Now, they'll let you go so far. Okay, they'll let you, give you a little bit of rope, but once you step over that line... 
Okay. You're expendable. Right. So at the end of the day, we're still talking about racism in one form or another. Right. Because basically they're saying, okay, we're going to tolerate this African-American so only so far because there is a ceiling to which you know we this will tolerate true. as an African. In, in this African-American category, we will tolerate only so much. But somebody mainstreaming, a.k.a. European-American, will be able to tolerate a lot more because because they're, they were, also they were more willing to fight because their seat at the table is secure. Yes. It's both sides of it. Yes. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. So, because they know many of them, and I've observed this over the, over, over the years, many leftist Anglo intellectuals. For them, it's just an intellectual game, it's an intellectual thing. They aren't willing to put their bodies on the line. Mm-hmm. And it brings prestige to certain universities that have them there. Okay, this, you know, uh, intellectual freedom thing, freedom of speech, and all, and all that type of stuff. And you see, the other thing is about this whole thing, this, all of this, what we're talking about. I don't listen to what people say, I watch what they do. Right, exactly. Okay, because okay. yes. anybody can say anything and they can get away with saying anything to certain people. And I watch what they do. These blah, blah, blah is very easy. Yes. <laughs> so you got these people, they live in these, you know, these high intellectuals, you know, they live in these economically segregated communities. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, they're running down the system intellectually. I say it's all messed up and so forth and so on. But all they're doing is reproducing the same system. Right, right. Okay, they're sending their kids to private schools. They don't mix them up with those, you know, crazy-ass public school kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, they're sending them to universities and law school or whatever, even though they're claiming that, you know, they, they, they want major transformation of the system. They're replicating it privately. So it's, they're uh, complicit in many ways. Oh, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. some Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. The fact is, when it comes down to it, people want to take care of their own needs. And and there's always that that impedes Certain fundamental change. Yeah, that's you see, you see, you say, you say, people. Okay, want to take care of their own needs. See, the only, how do you get out of that trap? How do you get out of the trap? Not needs, but only needs and wants. Because we are, uh, generally speaking, okay, it's, it's just like your basic survivalist needs. We want status. We want prestige. Right. We want, you know, uh, to have uh, the best of the best. Right. How do you get out of that trap? Because what happens is, and uh, this was happening to the black middle class, you know, now you have a stake in the system because you got shit you need to protect. Mm-hmm. And that whole value system and all your material stuff, you don't own that. You follow me? Right. You, don't, you know why I say you don't own that? Those people don't own that stuff? Because that stuff owns Their behavior is based on the protection of their stuff. Yeah. But that, again, goes back to human psychology in that once you have something... You want to keep it. Yeah, but we view losing something we have, even if it's something useless, a trinket that lays in the corner of your house, wherever, never been used, gathering dust. Somebody takes that. Yeah, we all upset about it. Yes, yes, we we really we view loss as something much more detrimental than we view gain. It's something like three to one. Loss is three times more important to us than gain. And we all feel this. In putting race in such a 
importance, we forget to deal with all the other human foibles. All these movements go to different phases. And I think a lot of these movements get stuck for various reasons. And it's difficult. Like I said before, this culture has messed up all of us. And, they, and nobody is immune. No. You're not immune, and I'm no. not immune either. No. Oh, okay. I mean, we okay. all want to do something. Okay. okay, no, but no. <laughs> no, no I'm, just, I'm talking about the deeper stuff, too. Not just a decent life, but just the deeper you know, psychological stuff that we may or may not be aware of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we move on from values and concepts that, one, either the culture imposes on us, two, whether we adopt them and then we never examine them anymore? Hmm. That sort of thing. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. I was wondering where you're planning to read next? Probably at a theater. Oh, Art of Justice. Yes, yes. That's happening... The last Tuesday. The last Tuesday of each month, right? right? Yes, it's at uh, First Church. And then I I do some readings for uh, Black History Month. Oh, where? Uh, Are you going to be at the Nine? Gallery again? As right, well? right. Um, the second Friday. Second Friday. Second, 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 second yeah. Friday. Second yeah. Friday. And how can our listeners follow you? Is there any way? I know you're not on social media. If they really are intent, they can find me around for humanitarian reasons. Mm-hmm. I don't use electronic. There's some very serious humanitarian issues related to yes. electronics. Modern slavery. Right. Yes. Yeah. All throughout so, the supply chain. Right. Yes. So I don't. I don't know. I can't be with that. Right, right. I understand. Yeah. That's very kind of you. Yeah. Okay. Well, again. Yeah. Uh, I'm around town. So people want to find me. They'll find me. Yes. Around town. Yes. You are irregular at Cafe Tuba as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's Mondays right. every week right. on 27th Avenue. Yeah. Thank you very much again for your time. I really appreciate this, please. Thank you for the, uh, giving me the opportunity to express myself. Of course. Appreciate that. Thanks. For those of you who are not familiar with Amari Baraka, he was a poet and author and the father of the current mayor of Newark, New Jersey, Ras Baraka. In the interest of fact-checking my own statements, I had said that Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. That's according to a Wikipedia page, which cited multiple sources, including the National Science Foundation. At the same time, those sources were all data in the aughts, whereas in the latest article that I found from the Encyclopedia Britannica, dated January 8th of this year, Homo sapiens are said to have been around for 315,000 years. I will post a link to this article in our episode notes along with Blue's upcoming appearances. And this concludes the January 27th episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on SoundCloud and Instagram under Poets and Muses. Please remember to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, the link for which can be found on the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. And you can also follow me, Imogen Arate, on Twitter. Thank you for listening to our show. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.